This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 132 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Peter Jackson's 2003 film, The Return of the King. This is it, Luke. Everything's been building to this. This is it. This is our final chapter of Middle Earth for at least the foreseeable future. You know, we might do The Hobbit at some point, but this is the closing the book on on all of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah. I mean, and The Hobbit will be a dessert at this point, you know, following the following the main course, which this definitely was. Uh, I was looking back, and we published our first episode on The Fellowship of the Ring on April 12th of 2018. Uh, today, recording, it is the 14th of April, so we are two years and two days after our first published uh, episode, which we probably recorded two days prior. It's very close. Um, to a two-year journey we've been on uh, from the Shire all the way to Mount Doom and back again now. Uh, so yeah, here it is. And, and, and man, what a movie. Uh, I have a lot of observations. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm excited to get into it. We talked about it in past episodes, but this whole project has been kind of therapeutic for me. Absolutely. And uh, this is the movie I've seen the, the least number of times. So in many ways, it felt freshest to me watching it. Um, so, you know, that was exciting. Um, I, and, and even the extended version, I think I may have only seen once or twice prior to this. Wow. Um, so a lot of it felt, felt really new to me. Um, I had, a, I had a great time watching it. You know, I'm going to have little quibbles here and there. I'm going to have things I point out. I have some, some significant criticisms at times, but I mean, I had a great time watching this movie and, uh, this is like our podcast at its best, you know, after spending all this time with the book. Um, I was so hyped to watch it, and it just it just landed so well for me. Yeah, I totally agree. The movies to me feel so familiar. Like it's just such a such a comfort thing for me to to mm-hmm. know that in the end we'll defeat Sauron and and like go back to the Shire. And as as much tragedy as there is throughout, it's it's a, the journey is is worth it. And uh, yeah, I mean this time didn't didn't let me down on that front either. Uh, I guess since we're talking about it here, let's I, let's start digging into some of the general stuff before we before we talk filmmaker. And let's let's start by talking about this as a as a full three film trilogy, and then maybe maybe break it down and start talking about how you feel about this in comparison to the other two films. Like where where do you land with this film, and and how does it strike you with this most recent viewing, having the backstory and the source material of the book to draw from? So I'm going to get into that, but I want to I want to give one shout out here to the listener um, because there's something looming that we've begun this year, and I've realized that we've never done it before for any Lord of the Rings project, and that is I, I was thinking about this too. <laughs> at the end of this episode, we're going to have to decide whether or not the book or the movie is better, and I think we're going to do yeah. it for the full trilogy. That was my plan. Okay. Yeah, I was. I'm not prepared, but I'll I'll start thinking about it. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to piecemeal. I think it's going to be one or the other. You know what I mean? I I'm kind of dreading it. <laughs> I'm, you know, I have I have a lot to say. 
Um, dreading it, also looking forward to it. You know, it's a mix of emotions. But I wanted to, to put that out there to um, to the listener to stick around to the end because that's going to be uh, an interesting pronouncement for us. Um, and we're also going to go ahead and announce our next project. Um, and you're going to wanna, you're going to hear that too. So, with regards to what you said, um, how do I feel about this this trilogy as a whole, this film as a whole? Um, I think th- through the fullness of time, I can look back at this as, as truly a monumental moment in film, um, especially in like blockbuster uh, cinema and especially fantasy cinema. Like we've gotten so many great works of fantasy that have come after these movies, and so much of it is predicated on the success of this. And people looking at it and going, well, I guess fantasy can do well. Because for the longest time, the, the knock on fantasy was that it just didn't do well in, is for mainstream audiences. Mainstream audiences became thirsty for fantasy. There's always been a pushing of, of genre to the borders for, for, I think, general audiences. But um, I think it legitimized fantasy in this kind of fantasy for a lot of just, you know, general moviegoers and general, you know, content consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've seen this take going around, um, I think, because a lot of people are revisiting this trilogy right now. And uh, I'd be curious to pick your brain on this just off the cuff. Um, I've been seeing people say that they th- prefer this trilogy of films to the original Star Wars trilogy and that it's more important to them as a series of movies. It's it's crazy to say, like, I saw Star Wars first. So that was, you know, that was my first kind of fantasy sci-fi love, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But the I think I agree. I think these mean more to me. I think as a wow. as a trilogy, as much as, as as massive of a Star Wars fan, fan as I feel like I am, I think I just prefer Middle Earth to Star Wars. And, and you know, that's it's not, I would say it edges it out, not by a lot. Right. You know, I'm a hard-pressed to choose, too. Uh, the original trilogy, especially for me, uh, just holds a special place. I saw it when I was so young. Whereas I saw this a little later in life, um, you know, obviously it came out a little later in my life. Um, whereas I grew up on the Star Wars films, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've never been a massive fanboy of either. You know what I mean? Like I don't define myself by either, like many people do. But yeah, if I had to choose, I might give it to this one. You know, because I have criticisms of both. Uh, I don't unabashedly love everything about you know the movies, um, either one. Um, but the highs are maybe higher, you know, in the, in this trilogy and, and just the emotional connection I have to it is maybe just that much stronger. Um, and, and I've always felt like, uh, I think the connection between Lord of the Rings and fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons has always been very important to me because that's a game that I've played throughout my life. And, uh, I had the observation watching this movie that, it's kind of like a sizzle reel for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> like it's like it, so many people must have watched this movie and been like, "Oh yeah, I got to play some D and D after this." Um, you know, it does yeah. so much more than that, but uh, I was feeling it this time for sure. Yeah, I think that Empire Strikes Back is is a near perfect sci fi film, like in terms of like especially when it came out. Um, so like I think the highs of Star Wars are rival for sure the highs, and for me the highs of of the trilogy, this trilogy here of Lord of the Rings, I've talked about it multiple times. My favorite part is Fellowship, and yep. you know that's, and again, I think that the other the other parts maybe edge out Fellowship just barely. But the highs of Fellowship, I would put right there. I would put Empire right there. Like I think yeah. they're both near perfect for their genres. And and honestly, this would probably be its own podcast episode. Uh, just really debating this. I think I would need to watch them again because I have the recency bias of like I've seen these ones more recently. 
Um, so, you know, that's just my initial gut reaction, but, you know, I, it, it would be a fun debate to have and to actually watch all those movies and, and, and figure it out. Yeah, and I understand why people are bringing it up because it's always fun to, like, kind of poke and prod, but, you know, ultimately, I, both are great, so... And, yeah. you know, that's barring sort of the Hobbit trilogy and the, the prequel trilogy or the sequel trilogy for Star Wars. So, like, um, you know, that's not even bringing in those details. Yeah, there's, there's all this extra stuff on both that kind of is pulling at it, right? Um, so I have actually some more observations about where this, not only the films, but the, the books, too, where it all comes together in the zeitgeist and the legacy of Tolkien and the legacy of Peter Jackson's films. Um, but I want to save those for the very end because I, I'm going to use them when I'm talking about this debate of book versus movie. Um, so if you're okay. ready, I, I think I'd like to start hearing about some of this behind the scenes stuff you have. Yeah, I think these are some of my favorite movies to dig into because it's sort of these, these appendices, and I've talked about it before, The Fellowship uh, really spurred my my love of film, I feel. And I think that it was a huge, at least it was a huge stepping stone towards like what how much I would love film and how I would want to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like these appendices are literally the, the kind of your best look, especially back when they first came out on those DVD, the special edition DVDs when they came out. It was like nothing, you know, there was stuff out there that was attainable, but like I was pretty young. And so for me, it was like the first time seeing like this is how movies are made. Yeah. Um. So revisiting those all the time is, is so much fun. And there's so much to this. I think people people think of this trilogy and they're like, oh, yeah, it's a it's the same as any other movie. You know, it's it's shot and then it comes out and it comes out in theaters and like. It's just such a different, you know, it had never been done in this way. And it was three movies shot in a row, which also hadn't been done. Um, and I think people are just like, oh, yeah, Peter Jackson, he directed it. And it was it was this whole thing. And then it came out and it was a huge success. But like all the people that were involved and, you know, I think if you start to dig, people know about what a workshop and they know about all mm-hmm. these practical these practical locations and, and sort of sets that they built. Uh, which were all amazing. The costuming, I, we've talked about it on all the episodes, so I don't want to touch too much on all, some of this stuff. If you want to hear more about that, I'm sure we talked more in our Fellowship movie and our Two Towers movie episodes. Mm-hmm. But um, I found myself thinking a lot about Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens this time around um, okay. watching, mostly because, and I think I did talk about this in past episodes, but they, along with Peter Jackson, were literally taking Tolkien's lore in his world and having to recreate it and change it and morph it in ways that would be serviceable to fans like longtime fans and people who are new to it and i mean you know i i just have to go ahead and say this here whether or not this makes you think that i you know prefer one over the other i think that the way that they were able to intercut the stories absolutely changed this this fundamentally changed lord of the rings especially for that more modern audience for so much the better and it works so much better cinematically Uh, And I was just thinking about how while they're filming Fellowship, while they're filming Two Towers, while they're, you know, they're in post-production, they're they're pre-produced, they're in pre-production for the for the following film. They're constantly rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Um, And it was just just to think of all the hours that they spent with Peter Jackson after he got off set to to write and and sort of mold this and and come out with something that I think is just like amazing. And, And the way that they were able to take moments and intercut them together as I was reading the J.R.R. Tolkien books this time, I was realizing how much the intercutting helps this story. You know, yeah, because we were talking about in the books that they separate out Frodo's story, Frodo and Sam's story from the main story, and they they kind of occur separate halves of the novel, um, which are literally called book five and book six. If you haven't read the books, right. that's why. Um, so yeah, what you're referring to, I agree. I, I think it's also partly something you have to do for this medium. It, it just works so much better this way. 
and I wanted to, since we're talking about uh, the people writing this thing, um, I, I feel like I've given them a lot of shit for a lot of the humor that has been that was added um, because some of it doesn't land for me personally at times. Um, but I was I was really thinking about how what I'm not doing is appreciating all the humor they added that does work. And there's a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of great lines. There's a lot of moments with the hobbits that really work. There's a lot of even moments with Gimli and Legolas where it's not as cringy as some of the other stuff. And, you know, if if your hit rate is, is 90% and yet you still have 10% where people are cringing or I am personally cringing, you know, I'm not going to speak for everybody. Um, that's still pretty good. That's still a pretty good hit rate. And, um, the fact that levity is inserted into this movie that, that honestly makes it not only more widely appealing, but is a nice moment of 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 uh, you know being able to crack a, crack a smile and have a laugh in the middle of what is otherwise a pretty daunting film as far as like a lot of really bad stuff happening all at once. It's a good they strike a good mix is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think it also leads to us sort of seeing the personality of the filmmakers come out too. Like we get to see sort of you know it's also how old at this point like 20 years old like the trilogy is near 20 years old or mm-hmm. the first movie is near 20 years old so like you know the maybe the humor doesn't hold up for those reasons and maybe they were trying to you know go for a more general audience um i find myself in in i talked about how i feel like i'm probably biased at the end of our last episode but i find myself being pretty forgiving of a lot of things in in this final film that i think i think i can remember people talking about it as it came out and even even after the fact, just a lot of the things that, that people point to, I don't really have a huge issue with, um, you know, some of the humor, like you said, I think like you said at the beginning of the episode, a lot of it's just nitpicking for us. Yeah. Like I, I, I do enjoy near everything that happens in this and, and some I mean, of the if stuff, we're going to have a conversation about a movie that lasts an over an hour, we're going to nitpick at least some <laughs> I think right. that's to be expected. Yeah. Like I can remember the, you know, the, one of the largest criticisms is sort of the CG and the way that they, the way that they handled it in this film and how, you know, it progressively got more and more CG intensive as the films went on. Um, and, you know, I think that's clear. It's clear that like the technology was holding them back. And, but I think when they, even when they did CG for the most part, they always tried to do it from like a practical standpoint. And maybe that was just like kind of the technology of the time. But for the most part, like you said, maybe like I think there's about a 90% hit rate and like that 10% yeah. is kind of, it mostly holds up. Yeah. And and that's that's a feat 20 years later. Yeah. Um and and even the ghosts, a lot of the things that I think people have problems with aren't the ghosts that are in the forefront, but sort of when they do these large sweeping composite shots that that mm-hmm. were like pretty ambitious for the time, they don't quite hold up. Um those are the ones that tend to be that tend to look kind of rough and and some of the stuff with the Oliphants. And, and that brings me to another thing is just like how under the gun they were for the, for this the entire time. Like I talked about uh, how they're constantly shooting and then rewriting when they're not shooting. This is, they shot principal photography for 14 months on all three of these movies together. So over a year, a year and two months. Mm-hmm. And then for the, the intervening like three months, or, or sorry, for the intervening like three years that, that would go on between the pre-production on the first movie to post-production on the third movie they would they would go and do like six week pickup shots for each film and things like that so i mean it was such a it's such a crazy process and they were so under the gun and just to think about how many cg shots there were in this final film 
and how like you know everything you know if you're on the first movie you can be like oh we'll push it we'll push it we have we have all this time we'll just push that shot to the next day we'll push that shot to the next day but as you get nearing the as you get closer to the end everything starts to compound and in the appendices i was seeing that there were times when they were running like something like 10 units at the same time so they had 10 different cameras rolling on 10 different scenes all filming pickups and miniatures and just little inserts or like landscape views things like that um crazy to think that they wow. and and all of that was being monitored by peter jackson and company where you know everything that's being shot is is through his vision and everything so just crazy to think like what situation they were in with this and sort of the cg team was in and all that kind of stuff leading into this final movie so uh a couple things one to touch on the 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 undead um i they're probably my least favorite part of this movie um i have a lot of criticisms uh the way the CGI looked is a more minor criticism of them. Um, I, I, I don't like a lot more about them, um, which I'll get into as we go. Um, but for, for my taste, they do look a little bit Haunted Mansion for me. Reminds me of the Haunted Mansion ride at, at what is it, Disney? Yeah. Um, and whenever I, I, I see them, they just seem kind of corny. Um, even though they don't look terrible, it's just something about that green, something about the way they're employed and they fly through Aragorn at times. It just, it just is a little silly. Um, and like I said, CGI is not my main criticism of the, the, the dead. Um, I have other story criticisms of the way they're, they're employed. Um, and then I think the worst CGI moment in the film, and it was pointed out in another video I watched by this, uh, YouTube channel corridor crew. Um, and once they highlighted it, I couldn't not see it. Um, there's a moment where Frodo goes running into Mordor or, or into Mount Doom. I know exactly what you're talking he's about. He's on yeah. like he's on roller skates when he's running in. It looks so bizarre. Right. It doesn't. He's right. not connecting with the ground. And that, I mean, clearly, like you said, the reasons are there. They were under the gun. They didn't have enough time. Um, I'm sure that's why that looks like that. But um, I think it's the worst moment of CGI in, in maybe all three films. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. I saw. Like, I, I mean, I. I feel like I've known that for a while. I feel like I've seen that shot many, many times. And then this time when I specifically saw it again and was like, God, that that looks horrible. I think you're just supposed to, your eyes are supposed to be drawn to Mount Doom so much mm-hmm. that you're not paying attention to him. But unfortunately, like once you've seen it a bunch, you, you start to key in on that. Um, I will say that a lot of this stuff, I think a lot of the problems with CG, and I think that this is what filmmakers have realized over time. And I think Lord of the Rings was kind of putting their best foot forward and sort of starting to teach people about this is CG is obviously best done when it's blended with practical. Like a mixture of the two is, is what creates sort of sort of what I would what I would say the most realistic three-dimensional spaces and things like that. Sure. Um, and so I think in trying to keep the the undead somewhat practical, they they ran into the, what you're talking about sort of that haunted mansion look because very clearly there were actors who acted those scenes and then they put sort of filters and CG over top of them mm-hmm. that made them look kind of interesting. Um, and I, th- I think I forgive that much more than I would for- than I forgive sort of just like clunky sort of no gravity uncanny valley CG. You know what I mean? Like I, okay, I think I yeah. prefer like sort of a, something from a practical standpoint than something that's like completely unrealistic. Well, and I want to say that a lot of it looks great. You know, uh, so much of the CG in this movie looks great. I, I unless I have a you know background in this, I can't look at a scene and tell what is practical and what is CG. Sometimes you know, sometimes it's so well blended. Um, what's a miniature and what's a full size thing. You know, there's a lot of that. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it looked great, you know, and, and I, I honestly don't want to harp on it because I think the special effects 
in general in this film across the board are astounding and and something that is held up as one of the one of the best examples of of an amazing work from a cg team or a, a special effects team yeah so you and you brought up miniatures so i want to talk about that for a second um just as kind of a factoid here the principal photography of this film was 274 days and just as like something to note there's, you know, there's other crews that are doing things, but you have on this movie, Peter Jackson loves miniatures. So he was doing a lot with miniatures in the appendices. They talk about the fact that the miniature department shot for 1000 days oh in comparison God. to the principal photography of the actual Lord of the Rings film was 274 days. Wow. <laughs> which is just like unbelievable to me. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy. And, and specifically in the appendices for Return of the King, they talk a lot about Minas Tirith. They created a one one seventy second scale version of Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. Um, it was seven meters tall and six and six and a half in diameter. Absolute. So like you know meters. I think that's somewhere around twenty twenty one feet high. Yeah, that's a miniature. full. It fills up a room. That's pretty wild. Absolutely insane. And the the level of detail in those miniatures, you can yeah. put them and use them as the backdrop in those shots as when they start to layer it, and it looks like it does in the movie. And and mm-hmm. it, I think that's something incredible and something again that I think. When you blend the two, I think it really looks amazing. But unless you have any other general stuff, I think we can jump into some of the plot stuff here. Yeah, I mean, I think we've already talked about Peter Jackson at length, right? I think uh, in previous episodes, if I'm remembering correctly. So, yeah, I'm ready for yeah. it, man. Let's let's get into it. Yeah, I mean, I would like to talk, touch more on him, but overall, I think we have talked about him a lot. I did want to note that sort of the, the leading up to the Paths of the Dead, that sort of uh, corridor that they mm-hmm. head into that's all foggy is actually a shot. He he reused that location in New Zealand for that shot um, when he had previously used it on another of his films called Brain Dead. Um, oh, wow. They, so I just thought that was something interesting that like he is such a love for New Zealand. And and honestly, that's something else that, that we should touch on is just the way Weta Digital and Weta, Weta in general special effects department uh, and New Zealand, the way that the, the way that this film franchise affected that that region and sort of sure started up their their film careers and like really made them a top of the line production department uh i think i think is something to be noted as well and sort of um getting to see all the people that that peter jackson brought in to work with him i think is some of the most fun that you can have while watching the appendices just seeing like friends that he worked with on early films and and sort of like uh people who who were kind of at the beginning of their careers and and like sending them down to like become some of the greatest you know special effects departments and things like that of all time. Um, and, and it meant so much to the region in general. A lot of the stunt performers and a lot of the people in general that worked on the films were all native to to that region, to, yeah. to New Zealand. So, And the tourism that has exploded there because the Lord of the Rings is an ongoing gift that these films gave to that region. Like you said, lots of people's you know livelihoods have been you know created or, or continue because of this franchise. Yeah, which I think is just something really cool to note, just seeing like something amazing like this film franchise and also having an added effect to, to kind of help out a region is, is really yeah. cool to, in my opinion. Um, but let's jump into this plot if you're ready. I'm ready, man. Okay, so we start off with Smeagol and Deagle are fishing when Deagle discovers the one ring in the river. Smeagol is ensnared by the ring and kills his friend for it. He retreats into the Misty Mountains as the ring twists his body and mind until he becomes the creature Gollum. Gandalf leads Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and King Theoden to Isengard, where they reunite with Merry and Pippin. Gandalf retrieves the defeated Sauron's Palantir. Pippin later looks into the Seeing Stone and is telepathically attacked by Sauron. From Pippin's description of his visions, Gandalf surmises that Sauron will attack Gondor's capital, Minas Tirith. 
He rides there to warn Gondor's steward, Denethor, taking Pippin with him. And what a great way to start this movie. Um, the backstory of Gollum as Smeagol, uh, seeing uh, Andy Serkis without his makeup on, uh, yeah. although he has some other makeup on probably, but not the Gollum makeup. And uh, it's such a it's such an interesting story. And um, it made me realize that um, Gollum doesn't get a lot of page time in the book for Return of the King. He, he A lot of it happens in Two Towers. And instead, we're getting a lot of his story here in this film. And it just reminded me of how great a character Gollum is. And um, seeing the transformation and the way the ring immediately seizes on him, has him kill his friend, and uh, the way he immediately... You know, it's unknown, like, how much of it is the ring twisting his mind? How much of it is Gollum having, like, a latent evil that that is ignited by the ring? Uh, or latent greed, or, or what is it, you know? And I don't think there's any way to know, but the way that they get entwined, and then and the idea of him over just many, many years physically transforming into this monster, um, it's just such a such a great way to start this movie, and just really hooks you. From what I understand, this scene was supposed to to be placed somewhere in two towers but within the edit they realized that it didn't really fit there wasn't a spot to flashback so eventually peter jackson realized he wanted to just start this movie with it and starting on that that shot of the worm like twisting and contorting around in in golems or in smeagol at this point's finger uh i think he really enjoyed that and i agree i i remember seeing the scene for the first time and being like just so so taken aback knowing that like we were going to get the the golem backstory the smeagol's golem backstory mm-hmm. um and yeah, the transformation is really, it's really awful to look at, like, like sort of in between that, the Smeagol and Gollum persona, yeah. he looks honestly worse sometimes than he no, does. No, no, he does. He, he, he ends up looking like a little more cute at times. Right. Um, but like those intermediary steps are a lot grosser yeah, <laughs> and a lot more monster, monstrous. Yeah, and we get like the close-ups of him like eating fish and like mm-hmm. everything gushing out of his mouth and stuff. Peter Jackson loves his gross shots. I'd be curious to know how those those shots were achieved. I'm sure curious. practically. I'm sure there's <laughs> something. I'm sure they were real. Uh, I know he loves his sort of like you know gruesome stuff like that. So it was cool to see that in in the Lord of the him that find its way into the Lord of the Rings movies. So you mentioned the the Sauron scene, and I I was quite taken with it. I thought this was a really clever way when you know you're not going to do the scouring of the Shire, which we we talked about extensively in our last episode. You know you're not going to do the scouring of the Shire, yet you have this character you need to you need to wrap up. Now, I think a lot of this was cut from the theatrical version. I, I think uh, mm-hmm. it, it left kind of a hole there, and I was like, whatever happened to that guy? Um, <laughs> well, I think I, he's, you're supposed to think he's just locked in Isengard, like, like yeah. being like taken care of by the Ents. Yeah. So anyway, but we go with the extended version on this podcast as the as the canonical version. So uh, I I thought it was smart. You know, you have Grima there. You have Grima's uh, backstabbing. um, You have, you know, Gandalf saying, don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. And and it was an exciting scene. Um, You get (laughs) him shooting a fireball looked a little little odd to me. It was a weird moment of like very D and D magic in a in a world where you often don't see a lot of that sort of magic. I think it even mm-hmm. makes like kind of a noise. <laughs> he's like <laughs> he fireball, fireball, fireball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but man, it, it was it, it was cool, and um, Christopher Lee is just so great in that role. Like he he's hamming it up big time, you know. Um, but oh, it yeah. fits the character. 
um he, he is so perfect for that role he is a joy in this role i think he you know r.i.p to one of the greats and and i mean just in general i know how much this this story meant to him i think it's well known i don't know how factual it is but supposedly he read the lord of the rings trilogy every year every year until his death yeah um i i mean i, I think he brings a lot to, to saruman and I, it's funny because in the in the appendices they they're sort of having like a rap party and this is or, or maybe it was the premiere it was the premiere and and he was kind of fucking with Peter Jackson for cutting cutting this stuff out of the original cut of Return of the King. Really? For, for, he's like, he's like, don't worry, it'll make the extended cut. And he's like, yeah, but this is the best part. It all goes downhill from here. And like, the guy's just amazing. Like, Chris really seemed like such a cool guy. And yeah, uh, you know, I think famously he he was like part of like the special. He was special forces or something like that for the English military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember like SAS or something. And another amazing story from the appendices. Uh, you know, he's supposed to get stabbed by Grima and Peter Jackson's kind of trying to tell him how to like react to that. And Christopher Lee is like, no, 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 that's not the noise that somebody makes when you stab them in the back. And and he's like, this is the noise they make. And he like actually <laughs> made the noise. And Peter Jackson was like, okay, well, I'm not going to push that issue. I'm just going to go ahead and assume <laughs> that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. He was an incredible guy. If you want to research more about him, really, really interesting dude. Um, yeah. RIP for sure. So next up, they're in Rohan, and um, first off, the music of Rohan is just so good. Like, so much of Howard Shore's score, um, but I love how it's so tied to location, and every time you go to a new location, or you have a character who's, like, thinking about home, and then you'll hear a little bit of that musical cue. So good. Uh, Rohan's music in particular, particular amazing. Um, and they have this, like, this party in the Great Hall. Um, we have the drinking game between Legolas and Gimli. And that, that was honestly pretty funny. I, you know, I don't mind that. I mean, the, the cross-eyed look from Gimli and stuff is a little silly, but but I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? It was it was it was funny. Um, one moment I thought was was unintendedly comical to me was when Aragorn uh, comes out in the morning and um, Eowyn is asleep and he like covers her up and she wakes up for a moment. She says, what time is it? He says, not yet, Dawn. And they're in like full sunlight. <laughs> like there's so much light in this scene. And I was like, where is this light coming from? If it's not yet dawn, is he lying to her? And then he walks outside and it's dark out. So <laughs> it's like a bizarre moment. Um, some of the lighting at times can be a little off. And I, I noted that I think in, in Two Towers, I thought I felt like Helm's Deep was way too bright. Um, but, you know, you can be forgiven of like, we need to see what's going on in the battlefield. But this scene, I thought it was bizarre for it to be this incredibly well lit. She's like bathed in white light. And yet there's like n no indication of where that light's coming from. <laughs> it's magic, magic torches on the wall. Okay. <laughs> Movie magic. Yeah. Uh, there's also a moment when when <laughs> this is this might be a little later, but I have to talk about it now before I forget. There is in, in terms of noticing little things after a lot of viewings. There's mm -hmm. a moment when Aragorn sees the the beacons have been lit and he's like running back into the into the hall and mm -hmm. as he runs in there's this moment that I always notice that happens a little later now this is We've this is later bit. yeah I'm skipping okay. ahead just for just for this sort of behind the scenes kind of like uh -huh. watched it too many times moment as as Aragorn's running up to the guards that are standing at the hall he kind of like he kind of like fucks with one of the guards and like pushes their shield like he kind of like taps really? on their shield yeah he like reaches his arm like all the way out to and do that's it. in the that's in the the, the cut they use in that's the cut funny. that they used yeah and i think it could have either been you know vigo messing with somebody one of the extras or something <laughs> like that or i don't know a character choice but something i always notice is that he like kind of like daps up this guy's shield as he runs into the <laughs> into the hall so keep an eye uh, on that for the for yeah. your next viewing i have other little you know 
observations that you only get after watching a movie a bunch of times that I'll hit you with throughout. But cool. uh, back at Rohan, I want to touch on a couple other things. There's a great moment where Gandalf is sort of despairing about their chances, and Aragorn is the one to reassure him and say, what does your heart tell you? And Gandalf, like, great acting with his eyes, Ian McKellen, but, like, he has this moment of, like, ooh, and then he kind of goes, like, yeah, and he, like, nods. And, and I don't know, it's, like, it's a little over the top at times, but, like, it's so endearing. Like, that that just makes you love Gandalf. And, um, and also, I think it's a great moment for Aragorn to show the wisdom he has as a character. Um, and both of them, you know, this is what we've talked about. This is a story where the the premise is and the and the message is, you know, good will triumph over evil. Just trust your heart and your heart knows it. And that's true in this universe. And, you know, it wants you to believe that it's true in our universe. And I think a lot of people do want to believe that. Um, and, and a lot of people love this series because it backs up that worldview. Um, and that's on display here. And I think beautifully shown. I had something to mention with with Pippin touching the Palantir and sort of activating Sauron and, oh, yeah. and getting his attention. Uh, I thought that it was interesting for for Pippin to not fully realize what was going on and for Mary to be the one who's like, and you know, this is something that's been playing out through like, you know, Mary's the maybe more a little self-aware and understanding of the situations and Pippin's just along for the ride having a good time. But he does, mm-hmm. Pippin does grow in this film. Yeah, Pippin's greatest moments are in this film. Yeah, and so having Mary sort of tell him like, you don't understand what you've done. Like he now, like Sauron now thinks that you have the ring. I've always thought to be like a really interesting yeah. part. Um, and like the danger and like being, being a singular hobbit. Cause these hobbits are always in, in pairs and like, they always thrive in pairs, but whenever they're separated, it seems like they're not maybe as powerful or maybe, you know, as comfortable. And, and so seeing Pippin go off with Gandalf, as much as Gandalf is, is like incredibly powerful and you'd feel safe, not having your buddy, Mary there to back you up is, is a scary situation. Well, and Mary and Pippin have always been this pair, right? This inseparable pair. And to have them separated, and there's that moment where Mary goes out to the battlements and he's standing by Aragorn and he talks about how, like, he's always looked out for him, you know, and he doesn't know what's going to happen now. I think Aragorn says, you know, we don't know what's going to happen now. And uh, whether or not he'll ever see him again, I think is is an open question at this point. And, and I thought that was a powerful moment. And and yeah, I mean, separating these two, it, it's a really good idea, honestly, because the characters are so joined at the hip that they need to be separate, I think, to individually shine. And they do here. They each have a very different story and um, are able to shine on their own. And I do love that they they both end up in service of a king, two very yep. different kings. But, it, it, you know, yeah. it, it, it leads to some interesting sort of parallels. Yeah, which we talked about in the movie, and the, I'm sorry, the book episodes as well. So to get to the next section here, Gollum leads Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee to Minas Morgul, where they see the Witch King of Angmar lead an army of orcs towards Gondor. The hobbits begin climbing a stair that is a secret tunnel into Mordor. The Witch King and his forces strike and overwhelm Osgiliath, forcing Faramir and his garrison to retreat to Minas Tirith. Believing that Sam desires the ring, Frodo tells him to go home. He and Gollum continue to the tunnel leading to Mordor. Gollum tricks him into venturing into the lair of the giant spider Shelob. Frodo escapes and confronts Gollum, telling him that he must destroy the ring for both their sakes. Gollum attacks Frodo but falls down a chasm. Frodo goes to leave, but Shelob discovers, paralyzes, and binds him. Sam returns and drives her away, but then hides as orcs appear and take Frodo with them. The orcs then fight over ownership of Frodo's mithril vest, allowing Sam to escape with Frodo and continue their journey. Okay, a lot, a lot happens here. A lot to touch on, but uh, I think most important to me to get out right now, I just want to highlight how badass the Witch King looks in this film. 
So good. Um, getting armored up, and then when he flies out on on his fucking dragon beast or whatever it is, Felbeast, he lands yeah. on the gates of Minas Morgul, and the the orcs are coming out, and y- you know, it's like the most metal shit in the whole series. I-, I talked about some metal shit in the first movie, but man, this is this is like yeah, it looks like an album cover. It's so fucking cool. yeah, exactly, totally. And it's like you get the green lighting and like the crazy mm-hmm. like jagged sort of like it used to be a human it used to be a man a castle of man and it's been turned mm-hmm. by the orcs and everybody and it's all like jagged and metal and like he's like on the edge of it with his crazy felbies totally agree it's like yeah. got to be the most metal thing in the movie easy <laughs> yeah yeah and and i i you know we've played some world of warcraft um uh, you know over the, over the years and i just kept thinking like how much undercity seems to have been inspired by minas morgul and its whole like aesthetic <laughs> i was like if someone saw this movie saw this movie and was like we got to design all of undercity to look like this so shout yeah. out if you if you play world of warcraft <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the most, I almost said the most heartbreaking, but one of the most heartbreaking moments of the trilogy is when we, Frodo fully turns on Sam, which is a change from the, the book. And one that I think is really effective, um, in sort of, you know, showing the tension that, that Gollum has created and the whole food situation. But when Sam is crying and just sitting there and they climb away without him, I, I'm at my lowest, maybe of these whole, of all of these movies, it's the worst part. Oh yeah. It was brutal. Um, I, I, yeah, I agree. It was a smart move to sort of increase the wedge that is driven between Frodo and Sam, um, because it just makes it that much greater when they're sort of reunited and it's rebuilt. But yeah, that's tough. And especially the, the, when Frodo takes Gollum's hand, when they turn and walk away from Sam, like it's just like a dagger. Like it's so it's, and he says, yeah, he says, go home. Um, it's brutal. Yeah, I agree. And they're already in Mordor, so it's like you're you're basically sending him off to die. Like who knows? Where, yeah, there's what, no like, way you can saw make it the home. garrison. You saw all of those orcs that are coming out to fight. Like how could he make it back anyway? But it makes sense too. Like I I remember I was so frustrated with Frodo the first time I saw this movie, um, for this moment. But it makes sense. Like he's being he's being manipulated by the ring, and you always have to remember that with Frodo. And the ring makes you paranoid about people stealing it from you. And it's going to turn you on the people that I want to help you most. Like it is so it's really smart in its own way. And it knows that Sam is the biggest danger to it. So, of course, it's going to turn Frodo on. So so as much as it's Gollum, it is also the ring. It's those two working in concert on Frodo. Right. Oh, which I got to get it out now. I I, um, as much as I famously in our first movie episode, I uh, I committed the blasphemy of saying I don't know how I feel about Elijah Wood in this role as Frodo. Um, I I kind of want to retract that statement. Um, I I still I still have some criticisms about his performance overall, but like he's great in this movie. He's amazing. And yeah. he, he this is this is, I think his best movie as far as like his performance. Um, I think he does a lot of great acting throughout that is a really tough ask. There's a lot of internal struggles that are trying, he's trying to show on his face. Sure. People can have criticisms about him at times being a little goofy, but, or, or, or what have you, but I mean, the guy's amazing and, uh, his eyes are three sizes too big for his head. And it's incredible. The more you, if you, once you notice it, you're like, what, like, how is he shaped? It's really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's able to act with them, man. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful weapon in his arsenal. Right. And not to mention the color. Like, it's like the yeah. deepest blue you've ever, like, light blue you've ever seen. Anyway, enough about Elijah Wood's eyes. Yeah, before we fall into them. 
the, uh, you know that this moment where Sam leaves makes the moment where he finds the Lumbus bread so much more. You know, I'm like, oh fuck yeah, Sam's about yeah. to go off. He's about to kill Gollum. It, it, everything's ratcheted up for when he eventually, you know, yeah. goes and tries to tries to find uh, Frodo, and eventually does. But it's as he's being attacked by Shelob, which I think Shelob for the time is probably one of the one of the greatest feats of the CG um department was able to pull off like that that shelob in no way looks Good. like it's dated for to me yeah no it looks solid and uh, you know i gotta shout out the, the fact that um i don't you know it's kind of weird but they are uh peter jackson is really hitting on some phobias in this movie not only the arachnophobia but the fear of heights um that, that stare is the stuff that like if you have a fear of heights like i kind of do it will get into your. It'll creep into your nightmares there because is a, that that thing is so steep. It's in, it's wild. It's not even in any way functional. It's, there's no way you could yeah. climb that. Um, but there's a moment where when they're at the path of the dead, the the Rohirrim are there, and one of the one of the guards sort of walks towards the edge to look up, look out and see the troops that are there, and like the angle at which the shot is, it's kind of like from bird's eye view. And mm-hmm. we're looking straight down a cliff face. So I definitely feel what you're saying with like sort of like he's trying to induce. Yeah, he's he's doing it on purpose for sure. Well, and when Sam falls, when he stumbles, like you're talking about when he finds the limbus bread, that fall is like maybe the peak moment of like, oh, my God, he's going. Yeah. He's falling. It's happening. You brought two things up for me. The first one being uh, something I wanted to mention in this movie is, you know, the use of perspective. We've talked about it probably in all three of the movie episodes at this point, but the masterful use of perspective is is a camera technique that I think nowadays you don't even necessarily need as much because of you know the advent of so much technology and everything. But like the old school filmmaking classic techniques to to sort of play with the you know famously the the hobbits versus the the men and things like that. But there are moments that I think in order to like draw focus or like in terms of. Peter Jackson's blocking, I think, in order to draw f- focus to the eye. There are moments where he has, like, the ring loom large using the perspective of, like, people standing further back. In order to create that technique, you have to, like, cheat it and have the person standing so far away but have their eye line correct. And, like, there's the there's this moment that you're talking about with um, the reveal. Uh, after Sam falls, he, like, he, like, hits his face and we we pull out a little bit to reveal this to reveal the lemon spread there and like the perspective as he goes to grab it, I think is just like, you know, it's just such a smart technique because it's using the, the audience's like film knowledge to really show like the importance of this and what it means to the moment. But then from that shot, he like tilts up and shows like the sheer rock that he just fell off of. Mm-hmm. So like he uses like this, this whole like pull out, like show the perspective of the, of the bread and then tilt up to show like where he just fell from. And like, I think it just makes for really engaging shots. And I think, I, overall, I don't think I need to talk too much more about how amazing this movie looks. Like the cinematography is amazing, as well as mm-hmm. the production design and everything else. But that that specific moment, I can remember being like, "Damn, that was that was cool." When he like pulled out and showed the limit bread. The other thing I wanted to mention was Peter Jackson. I, I, from the appendices, I learned that Peter Jackson famously is a huge arachnophobe, and he rather than being like squeamish about it, he leaned into it and was like, "I'm going to make a scene that absolutely terrifies me, and I can barely watch." So that was like a, like an objective that he went out to to achieve. Is that when is fears. that when Shilob is creeping up on Frodo? That yeah. moment, because that's all, yeah. the moment, man. That when it when it's like behind him, yeah, when it's over top of him, ooh, yeah. I, I am stuff. not a fan of spiders, so that got me pretty good. And then we get we get Sam going into Kirith Ungol, 
and and like you know having that shadow on the wall cast and he's like growling and trying to be crazy and then instead of instead of them running away in fear we get the moment of him revealing himself as a hobbit which i find to be even more badass and then he like fights his way up and he's like this is for this is for my gaffer this is for me and there's a couple of those (laughs) moments there's a couple of those like sort of cliche moments that i i feel like take those out and maybe put in something more original i think people would those are some of the jokes that i feel like are let they're they're jokes but they're also meant to be really cool um but i think i think that one worked but there's also another I think moment. That one works for me yeah but there's also another moment i'll just talk about it now where aragorn is like he's like halt you you may go no further and they're like oh yeah who's gonna make us you and what army and then like the army of the dead comes out yeah that's the army of the dead man that's yeah, that's maybe the worst moment in the whole movie, and it and it and it, it starts disc two if you watch them on discs like I did. Uh, right. So it's a real brutal way to start the second half of this movie. You're gonna defend that line because I I I I don't know, man. I might fight you on it. No, I'm not gonna. I, do I gotta get my axe right now? <laughs> do I get no, I don't want to defend it. I uh, I brought it up because it's it's uh, a moment that I feel like is like kind of cliche and cringy in the way that like oh, this is bad. for me, this is for my gaffer, like that sort of. I, like, I thought Frodo. that that line was good though. I don't I don't, I don't see the. I but think just, one's good, one's bad is the, the comparison. I see. But it's not like it's but it's something that's from a bunch of movies that you've seen before, right? Like it's not like I guess I, I don't normally see people calling out their gaffer. <laughs> yeah true i just love that but this word, one's man. for me this one's for so and so this one's for all of those things mm-hmm. uh just struck me as kind of cliche but again i don't think yeah. that was the one that i had a problem with the ghost one i had more of a problem with yeah um but yeah we get in the extended cut i believe is different than the original where we get to see like the full-on battle that the orcs have over the mithril and like what it creates yeah. the battle within kirith but before we get to that battle though i want to back up a little bit to shelob's lair because uh and the and the encounter with Shelob that occurs later on the um on the path, um, it's one of Sam's best moments. So we can't just kind of gloss over it, right? He shows up. He's got the light. He's got the sword, and he has an epic showdown with this with this spider. Um, great fight. It's well it's well choreographed for a fight between a person and a giant CGI monster that right. doesn't behave in ways that like make a lot of sense to us as people. Um. And all those, you know, all those uh, challenges still, like, it's it's a great fight. Um, it's uh, a moment where we just cheer for Sam. And the way he says, like, get, you know, uh, don't, uh, what does he say? Get off of him, you filth, or, or something like that. And it's so, mm-hmm. it's so good. I just love you that know? he's like, you'll, you'll never touch him again, and, like, pulls, pulls the light out. And, and, like, that's, that, that moment forever makes, when I think of Return of the King, that's a, that's a, like, image that pops into my head is Sam holding out the light with Sting in his hand, fighting Shelob. So good. Um, and then, uh, yeah, let's, let's finish out this, this moment with Frodo and Sam, and then we got to get back to Minas Tirith, but yeah, the, and then going to Kirith Ungol. One, one thing I had here that I'll go ahead and bring up, and I found a couple moments where I felt like there was an odd choice in the edit, editing that created a problem where there shouldn't have been a problem. And for me, one of them is here because we see the fight break out and then it desperately needed to cut away to something else and then return later. And then we see Sam enter the the newly sort of emptied out fortress that has been that where everyone has died. Um, but instead, there is no intercut, and immediately Sam comes in, and everyone's dead. And it just felt weird with like the my like notion of cinematic time. It felt like not enough time had passed between the fight breaking out and what happened. Um, yeah. it's not a huge problem, but like the, these are the things that I think edits can smooth out. Um, and there, you know, there's another one that happens later I'll touch on, but where I, I was a little bit, I had some quibbles with the editing department and how they, they cut things together. 
Yeah, no, I mean, and for this extended cut, you, you have to think, like, if he was actually going to release this as the official theatrical cut, they probably would have done some sort of pickup or something. But, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, you know, I didn't notice that, but it, it's probably something that I'll notice from now on. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, yeah, cool fight. Um, the, the the fight breaking out and the, and the way, like, he kicks the guy down the well and then the other guy goes out the window and it kicks the whole the whole battle off. I, you know, I thought that yeah. looked good. And, again, like, I can't, I can't stop talking enough about how amazing these orcs looked even today. Like, it's yeah. just, like, absolutely incredible. Some of them, some of them you can tell are sort of, like, B- orcs like they shouldn't be too close to camera but the ones yeah. that are like right up in your face and like like you can tell they got people who had interesting shaped faces and things like that in order to like really convey the, the entire orc look and it, I, I, it just really works a lot of it let's go back to Minas Tirith because we got to talk about Denethor we got to talk about the Minas Tirith in general Faramir lots of stuff goes on there uh you know Pippin uh entering his service and uh Man, uh, Denethor is a shit in the books, too, but he's really shit in these movies. Um, oh, yeah. They do a lot to make him detestable. Um, in particular, the scene where he... So, first off, he orders Faramir, after after losing us Gilead, to go back out and fight. And there's this really powerful moment where we see this pointless charge, and then we get the song from Pippin, which is, which is you know, really, really, really good. Yeah, in terms of intercutting, like that was a moment that really stands out to me. Is like, uh, like, amazing. but also intercutting Denethor just noshing on some fucking little tomatoes. Oh, I hate and just it. squirting all over his chin. One of the grossest food eating scenes I've ever seen. He's like eating like undercooked chicken. Like it's it's all disgusting. Um, it's great though. You know what I mean? Like it's such a it's 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 a way of like telling us so much about this character. Um, that he's doing this during this moment where all these men are dying that he is sent out for no reason, um, including his own son. It shows his madness, and it's a, an effective scene, so I just got to give him props for that. Yeah, I mean, shout out to John Noble for being, like, the most detested character in, in all of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The, especially, dude, I mean, the thing that really gets me is he doesn't even know how to eat. That's how that's how <laughs> evil of a king he is. He doesn't even it's know how nice. to eat. Sprays it all over his own chin. It's like, yeah. oh man, he's so. I hate him so much in these movies. And and uh, yeah, you're totally right. The singing mixed with like the just like absolutely grotesque way he eats, and then having his son, it just matches. You know, and then this like crazy charge. At yeah, the same it just time, matches like, like how how gruesome and disgusting he is as a human for sending his son out on this on this fool's mission uh great scene um and yeah i mean shout out to him if you want to uh if you want to repair his image go watch some fringe which was a pretty solid show and he's he's much more likable in that show (laughs) as sort of the eccentric scientist so also in this section is uh pippin lighting the signal fires which then sets off this cascade of signal fires being lit across the countryside and um i mean it's a pretty obvious observation to make but i gotta make it Who's lighting these fires? <laughs> do they live on top these like crazy peaks? Yeah, they do. Like, they how have long have they been there? <laughs> like, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense when you really think about it. It definitely doesn't. But like, how excited if that's your job and you live up there? How excited are you when you see the beacon get lit? You're like, oh my god! Yeah. You're like, my grandfather lived his whole life and never lit this beacon yet. I've been here, right? And I live in this crazy peak. Like, some of those were wild, like so unreachable. But very very cool looking very cinematic and and like all the countryside of new zealand we get to see is worth it yes they they should have made a magical man they should like and honestly i feel like if you hadn't shown the guys run up and light the first one 
the or like the second or third one, whichever it is, where like the actual guys with torches run up and light it, then I you would have been like, hmm, I don't know how those got lit. Maybe it was magic, and then you would have shrugged it off. But because you showed the men run up with torches and light it, it implies that every single one of those is being physically lit, which is just a logistical nightmare. But anyway, we can move on. Not worth that. Not worth I, lingering on too long. It does make me think of something else. The 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 men. I, I never knew this until this this uh, time of watching the appendices, or at least I, I didn't remember it. It wasn't like imprinted in my brain. Um, there's like four guards who stand, and I, maybe this was even, this was probably in the book too, but there's four guards who stand around the tree um, and they don't serve the steward. They only serve the king. And so like they, they're like, you know, I'm sure that they like bring on new people as people age out and everything, but there is, mm-hmm. there are four guards always standing around Ceremonial that tree guards, yeah. in order, in order to protect it and that kind of thing. I don't so remember I, that from the book, but it might've been there. Yeah. Cool. Some cool detail. One of those details. And they actually wear different, different helmets and armor than, mm-hmm. than everyone else. So just, just interesting, cool details that like, you know, I didn't realize until now. So you know yeah. who's to say that like anyone even noticed it other than to add more texture to the world it's just very cool stuff so on to the next part aragorn learns from elrond that arwen is dying having refused to leave middle earth to be with aragorn after seeing a vision of their future son elrond reforges narsil into anduril so that aragorn can reclaim his birthright and gain reinforcements from the ghostly dead men of dunharrow joined by it legolas and gimli aragorn travels to the dead man's lair pledging to release them from Isildur's undead curse should they come to Gondor's aid. Faramir is gravely wounded after a futile effort to retake Osgiliath and Denethor falls into madness. Gandalf is left to defend the city against the orc army. Denethor attempts to kill himself and Faramir on a pyre. Pippin alerts Gandalf and they save Faramir, but a burning Denethor leaps to his death from the top of Minas Tirith just before Theoden and his nephew, Eomir, arrive with the Rohirrim. During the ensuing battle, the Witch King mortally wounds Theoden, Eowyn kills the Witch King with Mary's help, but Theoden dies. Aragorn arrives with the army of the dead who overcome Sauron's forces and win the battle. Aragorn then frees the dead men from their curse. All right, man, are you ready for my skull avalanche? Let's talk about it. Uh, we got it. We got it. I'm going to get it out of the way, honestly. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about it anymore, but I hate this. I hate this whole scene. I hate, I hate the dead. I hate the way they work. They should have only been used in the way that they were used in the book and that's to get on those ships i agree and then with we should that, have yeah. had we should have had an army of living people with aragorn i know i i can i can trace it back and i can see the thinking i can see someone saying we do, we can't have the dunedain show up in the movie because it raises too many questions who are these people it makes aragorn seem like he does have a, a, a like a home and that he does have people who follow him which muddies the water when it comes to him becoming the king of minas tirith uh, King of Gondor. I can see the decision making. I still don't agree with it because you take this the, the dead and you you ruin in many ways, it, not completely, but in many ways, it is just a, a, a just a terrible way to end the battle at Minas Tirith, uh, Pelennor Fields, which is such an amazing battle. Like I was thinking back and I'm like, why does this battle not get more love? Like it, it is so many ways. It's even better than uh, than Helm's Deep. It's so good, and I think a lot of it is the way it ends, um, yeah. and the way the dead come in and mop everything up. They make crazy noises as they're like overcoming things. Like it's so it's so dumb, and I hate it. And uh, that's all I'm gonna say about it. <laughs> okay. All right, I want to jump in here. A couple okay. of things. I think um, I think I much prefer the look and everything that goes on with the with the undead bef- when they're in the caves when they when they are in the battlefield. 
that's when I start to have more of a problem with them. Um, I do think something that during this viewing, something that really struck me is like the skulls avalanche just doesn't look right. Um, during that scene, it doesn't look right. It looks bad. Yeah, it's real bad. But what I what I found out in the appendices is that they all of that is practically shot and then composited in like like the stuff they've practically shot all of them like having skulls cascade on all of the actors and everything and then it's just like the background. Okay, but and the, the skulls are probably like made out of styrofoam or oh, something. So probably, it just it, probably. you know what I mean. It just it it looks bad. What practical or CGI or whatever it is. Right, I was just right. surprised because because of the way it looked, I actually thought that it was kind of just like an early CG hiccup kind of thing. But they actually shot it, and that's sort of how it all how it all turned out. Um, mm-hmm. It's real silly. It you know honestly you know there's the the old cliche about jump the shark, you know jump the shark moment. It felt a little bit like that to me. It was like oh god, um, <laughs> I, I think that scene was cut from the theatrical, which was a really smart move um, because it looks real bad and it felt like there was no coming back from it. Luckily they do come back from it and there are a lot of great, a lot of spectacular moments that follow this. On my, on my, uh, watching as well, I have the Blu-ray that, that splits it right there as well. So when I started to back up the, almost the first thing we see in that second disc too is Legolas like comically getting his air, his bow pushed by Gimli and shooting Peter Jackson in the chest. Um, which, you know, (laughs) pretty funny. I think one of the, one of the funny moments that works for me for sure. Uh, yeah, and then, um, but like, I'm not going to defend. Although that scene itself is terrible, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to defend the rest of it. I just, I just think, um, you know, I think they came. They were, they were sort of coming at it from the from the right basis, trying to do what they could with technology at the time. I don't think it works. I think, like you say, I think the reason that the Battle of Pen- Pelennor Fields isn't isn't remembered more fondly is because the ghost stuff goes a little crazy, and we get Legolas sliding down the nose of a of a yeah. oliphant and, and honestly that didn't bother me as much as the dead the second yeah. this, this time around like it looks a little bad and it's a little silly maybe that trunk thing is the worst part of it but like it's the dead that's the problem uh, for me anyway i i don't want to harp on it too much i want i do want to propose one more thing though because i was thinking about it and i don't know if this is canon or not maybe i missed it but why does a sildor's curse actually work on an entire legion of people and like truly curse them and make them beings that are stuck and that can come back and and fight and i was wondering if it's because when a curses them does he have the ring of power is this like another thing that the ring can do because so often i keep thinking about the ring and it's supposed to have all this power yet all we see it do is make people turn invisible um, and I'm wondering if this is like one of the, the implications is that it gives you, it grants you this like mystical ability to do things like cursed an entire nation of people. Yeah. I also think that I, I, that's a good observation. I had never thought of it like that before, but I also always think about the fact that the only people that we see wielding the ring and wearing it are halflings. So who's other than his, who's, when a sealdor has it for a while, but right, but we don't really get to see that. We just you know no, for a don't. moment. So we we don't really know like what the what the ring could do in the hands of someone else. Like you know, Gandalf talks about what he why he refuses it. We have mm-hmm. um, we see Smeagol, who is essentially a hobbit. He's not actually a hobbit, but he kind of is. He's the only other person we see wear the ring. Yeah, right. Uh, as far as we like, I think Gandalf says something along the lines of like something similar to a hobbit. Um, Galadriel, but, but yeah, about? Galadriel also refuses the ring, and we, you know, she says like what she would become with the ring. Yeah. So I think it has to do with like the hobbits wheel turns it. all blue and spooky looking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A queen. <laughs> so anyway, we're done. I'm not talking about the dead anymore. It's over. <laughs> Minister, the battle, the Pelennor Fields, incredible battle. 
Um, Theoden never fails to just fucking stir the heartstring. What is it? Play the heartstrings? I don't know. I'm mixing my metaphors. He delivers these speeches. Um, you know, shout out to the performance. So good. It's just like that that charge, like in in that speech, like it's one of the moments that brought tears to my eyes. Um, I, I had three I wrote down where I got a little got a little bit of waterworks going. This was this was my first one. Yeah, a little misty. And this one is just, it's so epic. It's it, his speech is so stirring. And then they're they're charging into battle, and like you can tell on his face, like he does a lot where he like looks at something, he looks at a threat, and he goes like, "Oh fuck, there's no way we can handle this." Mm-hmm. And then he like steals himself. And he's like, but I'm the leader, and this is my moment, and I gotta rally the troops. And then he like does this thing, and like he does it a couple times, and it's so good. There's literally a moment too in the extended cut where they where they say like, you know, we we can never hope to stand against the forces of Mordor, and he's like, no, we can't. But then he yeah. gives an, and then he gives an amazing we speech. Will also, meet them nonetheless, or whatever. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's also great stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, he does he does it at Helm's Deep. He does it pre mm-hmm. pre Pelennor Fields. He does it, you know, right before during and during and during the fight. Yeah. yeah. Great, great. I mean, honestly, again, if we're just shouting people out, Bernard Hill, shout out. Like, absolutely yeah, crushes so it as they had in. Yeah, there's a moment where he looks up and he sees the Witch King coming on the Fell Beast, and he knows he's dead. He's He looks at it, and he has this moment, he goes, oh, this is this is it. This is my moment. And and uh, I thought that was so well acted, because he doesn't say a word, and you can just tell. Yeah, I, um, I was in the appendices, they talk a lot about how... You know, they thought Helm's Deep was about as crazy as something that the that Peter Jackson could throw at the depart all of the departments, and then they got Pelennor Fields and they got the battle right here at Man- Minas Tirith, and just it, they took every every kind of facet of all the battles leading up to this and mashed it all together. You have massive trolls, you have you have like giant trebuchets and all kinds of like towers that they're like so breaching the walls with and stuff, and like the aerial assault of the of the Felbees flying in amazing i mean that whole so sequence good. is unbelievable this I, I think yeah i think you're right the the ghosts probably do kind of sour the scene for a lot of people nope we're not talking about them anymore they're done let's forget about them okay i've, I've already <laughs> forgotten forget about who <laughs> no we're gonna talk about how epic it is man gandalf pippin comes and gets him says you know they're gonna it's gonna burn faramir and then he he's riding up and then the fucking witch king flies down lands in front of him Whips out his sword, lights it on fire, breaks Gandalf's staff. Maybe I lied. That's pretty metal. I, I may have lied. That's pretty metal also. It's so good, man. It's so good. He, in general, the, the, the fucking Witch King slays it in mm-hmm. this movie. And, you know, he's, he's a villain, but, I mean, he's so fucking good as a villain. He's so right. scary. And um, we to, to see him, like, level Gandalf, and you see Gandalf doubting, you know? And, like, later when he's talking to Pippin, he's, like, talking about being dead and... And once again, talk kind of sounds like he's getting on the boat and going to the shores and when he's talking about being dead. So once again, it seems like this is like a metaphor for heaven and like all the elves are going to heaven. I, I, I don't know. And then we have to talk about Eowyn. Like this, the, the, yes. I think, I think you know, I, as much as people have said over time, and I agree, I totally agree, th- these movies don't do a great job of representing the female characters in Middle Earth. I have to give credit where credit's due. I think they do a much this better is, job in yeah. the movies. And, and oh yeah than the books for sure than the books yeah and and we get you know especially in the extended edition we get a lot more of arwen we get a lot more of uh eowyn and this eowyn i mean this is one of my favorite parts of return of the king easily like just oh, just yes. the way that she kills Amazing. the fell beast and then leans lunges in kills the kills the witch king and like the way he like crumbles and that's how mm-hmm. he dies like his face kind of crumbles in well and she gets hit in the arm just like just like in the book and i actually i don't mind the fact that the line has been changed to um i am no man 
and yeah no and that like yeah, i think good. it still works i think i think yep. maybe it's more i think it's Agreed. more interesting in the in the in the book where where we get like the sort the sort of like whole thing that she she recites like this is my this is my kin and i'll slay you before you could you could get to him i think it's definitely more eloquent but it's a movie and yeah. you have to be a kind of uh economic with yeah, your time it probably didn't make sense for her to say that much um, I, I think I kind of prefer this the, the, the movie version. And w- I got to shout this out. I think this is one of the most obvious and yet one of the best changes from book to film. And that is the fact that Theoden sees her fighting on his behalf, realizes it is, is it, it, that it is Eowyn, and uh, talks to her before he dies. Um, these are all changes from the book. Um, and I think it's an obvious change to make yet. I applaud them for making it because it is probably the best change (laughs) or it's right up there. One of the best changes. Yeah. I love the change. Um, it really adds weight to the moment and and it shows Theoden that he's been wrong. Um, there's just so many things that I think are important that happen here. When Theoden's dying, another, another thing that I really liked was, uh, the line where he talks about how he goes to join his, you know his his forefathers and now he will deserve to be in their company and like you could just tell it's so important to this guy like i don't i don't know that i really feel this way but um it's so important to him like it, it's such a character moment for theoden and he truly feels like and you're like yeah man you totally have like you you've earned it right whereas like he you know he would have disgraced the 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 family line had he been manipulated by a warm tongue and all that stuff and like he's really oh, yeah. shown like his his metal and his glory and like especially for this so for good. this world you can tell that people are very much that's important to them like getting back to their to mm-hmm. making good on their ancestors and and you know doing something noble with your life Oh, and smart writing to make it even more tragic when he uh after saying all that he says he like says Eowyn, he like, kind of looks like he has something more to tell her, but then he dies. Yeah, uh, that's a smart move. Makes it even more heartbreaking when he dies. Right, sure. leaving that mystery definitely. Yeah, it's like what was he gonna say? Yeah. So I do want to point out a weird editing thing that happens after the battle, sort of winding down. Um, we talked about the other one. Here's another one I, I noticed this time. Um, they find Eowyn on the battlefield, take her inside to the to the healing area. She fully recovers, meets Faramir. They make moon eyes at each other. They're looking out the window. Then we cut back and Mary's on the battlefield and he finds Pippin. And I was like, this is a weird way to cut this. <laughs> it may, like, I get you're trying to convey some time has passed, but like that seems like a lot of time has passed and no one helped him look for fucking Mary. Like Aragorn just peaced out and was like, yeah, I don't care about Mary. I, I care more about, you know, it just, it was weird. It felt like they needed to like cut those things up a little differently. Again, I think it's an editing thing. Um, so yeah, a couple, couple quibbles I had with the editing of how these scenes played out. Oh, another moment, Denethor, when he, uh, is on fire and he runs out, I was thinking about how the extended cut has created a problem of they've shown that the, I think this is only in the extended cut. They've shown that these tombs are in like a different area. They had to cross this big bridge to get to. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he runs out and somehow jumps off the front of the tip of that Minas Tirith, like spike thing that's jutting out. Um, so he would have had to run like three or four football fields worth of distance to get there, which doesn't make a lot of sense, even though it's a cool looking scene. And I, again, I think it's a, it's something where, uh, the extended cut created a bit of a problem that they just kind of shrugged their shoulders about. I think there were probably situations that happened also. And you know, this is just me playing devil's advocate. I agree. It's probably some sort of extended, extended edition, like editing issue. And they sort of like worked with what they had shot. Um, but I'm sure that there was probably this situation that ended up 
where they were like, okay, this is this after they had shot that scene, they pretty much right away realized that they were like, okay, this scene's going to get cut. Unfortunately, like that was a cool scene where they like crossed over and went to the tombs. Um, like in, in terms of like making it clear to the audience, I think it's, it's faster to just like make it seem like the tombs are somewhere closer by. And so in the theatrical mm-hmm. cut, when they, when they decided to have him like jump off, it was probably a decision that was made because they realized within the theatrical cut that they were, they weren't going to have that other scene that, that they added back in for the extended cut, something like that. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I did want to pop back over to Sam and Frodo for a second because there's a there's a moment at the end of uh, their scene that I wanted to touch on, and that's when Frodo um, asks where thinks that he's lost the ring, and Sam says, "No, I found it, or I've been holding it um, for you, just just holding it." And he goes to give it back to him, and the, when when um, Frodo kind of freaks out, and you can tell on his face he's going to have this moment of like, "Oh no, you, I can't believe you took it." And we're ready to like be like, God damn it, Frodo. Of course he's not gonna steal it. It's Sam. You know what I mean? Like, why are you being like this? But then we see Sam hesitate and look at the ring. And I thought that was a really smart way of showing the power of the ring that even Sam, who absolutely took it with the best of intentions, um, has this moment of hesitation. And it calls back to the book where we know about Sam the gardener and he has this he has this like fantasy about what he would do if he had the ring. Right. Um it's really smart. We don't we don't get the inner thoughts of Sam, yet we see the hesitation and 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 Frodo I think actually handles it really well because Frodo knows in this moment like this thing is going to be a problem and it's going to try and make you not give it back to me because I know how it is. Right. I think the first time I saw this movie I just didn't fully give Cro- Frodo credit for like how much he understands the ring. And um, there's a moment that happens a little bit earlier where he tells Gollum, like, I have to destroy it for us both because he really pities Gollum because he understands what the ring has done to him. And that's why he doesn't kill him in that moment. Um, It's after they are escaping Shelob's lair. Um, And again, once again, it's it's Frodo understanding the ring and and it's a, a great performance by Elijah Wood. I like the idea of Sam being the character who's most easily able to give up the ring. Um, And I guess technically he is still, but the lingering, the lingering has always kind of made me think like, I still think he would give it up. Had he been given another second or two, he still would have handed it to Frodo, but the snatching, I think. And he he essentially does. Yeah. I I like the, I like the addition of the, of like from, from the book of sort of having that, that hesitation. Um, And yeah, just showing the power of the ring. It's, it's, it, just corrupts everyone. And I think it's important to note, right? Cause we're building to the moment where Frodo in Mount doom turns back. And if we don't really drive home just how powerful the ring is, like it's too powerful for any one person to best. And I think that's on display here, no matter who it is, even if it was Sam, this is the thing where like people often, I think, I think it's kind of an easy observation to make. And I don't even agree with it where people will say like, well, we should have just, Sam should have been the ring bearer. He wouldn't, you know, he would have done it. He would have cast it into the fire. And I don't agree with that because like the ring is that powerful. I don't think any one person could have done it. You know, what's interesting too, is I don't think that the, I don't think they would have made it like, so let's say Sam is the ring bearer and Frodo is his friend who's helping him along. I think that Sam was the perfect personality to be the person who helps the ring bearer um, because him as the ring bearer being, being corrupted and then having Frodo who may not have been as well intentioned as Sam and maybe eventually would have maybe not given up on him but wouldn't have had the same 
love or whatever whatever it is i think that it worked out perfectly and and if it was the alternate if it was flipped i don't think that that they would have made it i think that frodo wouldn't have been able to give sam the support that sam gave frodo i agree all right in this last section here aragorn decides to march upon the black gate as a distraction so frodo and sam can reach mount doom Gollum attacks frodo and sam just as they reach mount doom as frodo stands on the ledge over the volcanic fire he succumbs to the ring and claims it as his own putting it on his finger Gollum manages to find and attack him, biting off his finger to reclaim the ring. Frodo fights back, and as they struggle for the ring, both fall over the ledge. Gollum falls into the lava with the ring and dies. Sam rescues Frodo as the ring disintegrates in the lava. As Frodo and Sam escape, Sauron is destroyed. Gandalf flies in with the eagles to rescue the hobbits who awaken in Minas Tirith and are reunited with the surviving Fellowship. Aragorn is crowned King of Gondor and takes Arwen as his queen. The hobbits return to the Shire. And a few years later, Frodo departs Middle-earth with his uncle Bilbo, Gandalf, and the elves. He leaves Sam the Red Book of Westmarch, which details their adventures. Sam returns to the Shire, where he embraces Rosie and their children. I, I gotta shout out the uh, the mouth of Sauron. Uh, we, we had fun with him in the book, where he was, uh, don't kill the messenger, and he's just this dude. Um, the change to have him be this like disgusting mouth uh, with a weird helmet, and, and really be a a striking character um i think it's a good one he, he i mean watching him talk was is just a horrific thing to do and then uh, aragorn chopping his head off was also kind of a cool shift I, I like that i think the mouth of sauron is really interesting and you know it's cut in the theatrical edition but i believe at least um i haven't seen it in such a long time but the extended edition it's there and i think it's really cool because we don't really get to see the forces of sauron that are interesting and unique other than the Nazgul and the orcs and the obviously mm-hmm. the Urukai. So like to see another Tr- sort of creature Tatrals. monster kind of thing that that you know is doing is performing Sauron's will I thought was really cool and and looks really really amazing honestly. So just to wrap up the battle um of the Black Gate, I mean the speech that Aragorn gives I think lives up to this any speech that Theoden gives it's right there with it. There, there may right come there. a day. There may come a day when you know we forsake our friends and and all that. And it's just such a great speech that that I I remember. I, that's that's the other moment I would say that I think of in Return of the King. It's basically like the destruction of the ring. Sam Sam with the light against Shelob and the speech that 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 Aragorn gives yeah. really really are like the big moments that stand out in my mind when I think of this story. Yeah. And I mean Viggo Mortensen like what what can you possibly say that isn't like he's he just seems like the coolest like most perfect person to ever play Aragorn I just constantly fascinated every time I watch the appendices I learned something new about the guy he seemed very funny and loving and I just think he really embraced the role of Aragorn and and you know this moment for him to like be the king but not quite have fully taken the crown yet he seems like an actor who went on after this film to have an interesting career like it, it feels like he could have been in a lot more sort of big blockbuster films than he's in. Like it felt more like he was like, yeah, I'm good. And now I'm going to do like projects that interest me solely. Like that's all you see him in anymore. He's not in the, those, you know, he's not in fast 10 when it's coming out next year. Right. You know, there were a couple that he did right after this that you could see, like he was doing this sort of leading man thing. Oh yeah. He was in like a, there was a, there was like a, there was one about a horse. Hildago. 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 Hildago, yeah. yeah. But that, I mean... Like I said, I, I think... I, I'm not... And that's not to say... Like, I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm just I'm just m- mentioning some of them. And I think he really does go for some things that he sees, you know, good in and things that he believes in. History and, of violence. 
history of violence is very good yeah so i think yeah. he he's really like carved a career for himself that he wanted you know he's not really interested in doing things for others he wants to well i mean artistically uh challenging or enriching seems to be seems to be what he goes for so yeah and then the for frodo moment is amazing and then we we get into the volcanic frodo stuff um mount doom and you mentioned the shot we'll, we'll mention the shot one more time where he sort of ice skates in into the the mouth of <laughs> lava pit <laughs> yeah I mean, let's talk about the good though. Like, so much it goes down in this in this final showdown that's so good. Uh, Frodo turning back and saying, "The ring is mine." It's like the most black moment of all black moments. Do you like the acting as well? Like, are you into the moment of yeah. him turning evil and putting the ring on? And like, I feel like I really bought that stuff. I, I think, think it, it works great. for me, man. Yeah, yeah, it works for me. It's all good. And 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 the heartbreak on Sam, like that's where it really sells. Is is Sam going like? You know what are you waiting for? And then no, like he, he's just so heartbroken to see to see Frodo turn back. Um, and then yeah, I mean, Gollum, the epic struggle, the biting off of the finger—it's just an iconic moment. Yeah. And you know, I think I think uh, Peter Jackson does it right. And then uh, one of the coolest moments of, of special effects is honestly when the ring is destroyed um, after Gollum falls into the lava. Um, and plummets uh, it, it is when uh, the the the, t- the tower is collapsing mm-hmm. and then it explodes off to the side like it's so fucking cool looking. I got to tell you an appendices story now. So there there so for this shot at the time, um, one one man over the course of two weeks in a uh, in kind of a special effects suite that he had built for himself over Christmas break when no when basically everybody else was not working. Um, he meticulously built individual pieces that almost went together like Legos in order to build an exact, like, like within the computer built like this amazing, like individually, like painstaking thousands and thousands of pieces. No, well, I'm sure it was at some point. I think this was a miniature. I think this was a miniature artist who was creating something in a 3d space. And so he created this, he created this, this like model that they were able to then blow up and have it become kind of particulate and um but it was just a crazy appendices story that that they went out of their way to talk about and this guy kind of it was like a legendary moment because it was like they were like did you he was working he said he was working seven days a week 18 hour days for like two weeks to to like get this done and you know they were like this guy probably didn't even leave his computer chair for the entire (laughs) time and shout out to him man Uh, oh, I do have to back up a little bit here and talk about the other moment got the waterworks going for me, and that uh, it never fails. Is is honestly, it's it's kind of a combination. It's like a culmination of moments, but it's it's Sam and Frodo talking about the Shire, and Frodo saying how he he can't taste anything anymore, and then and then them collapsing, and then of course Sam picking him up and and saying he can carry him, and then the look on his face is kind of what gets me, like the determination, right? And he's just like taking him up the mountain, like it's so good. Uh, got a little misty-eyed there too. Always, always gets me. Definitely, that always gets me as well. And then I got a third one coming. I'll hit on, but that was number two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These these moments that you're mentioning very much affect me as well. That 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 I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Is yeah, you know, always going to be a moment that I that I don't know that I can stop myself from crying. And so it's just mm-hmm. it's just like you say, it's a culmination of all of the efforts of everything involved with these movies. In addition to the fact that like just on a story level. You know, we're so bought yeah. into the to the tale of these two friends at this point. And it mirrors kind of like any struggle you have in life. Like you're like, you know, if you have somebody there to if you have somebody there to lean on and, and like it just it just makes it kind of mirrors 
kind of makes me reflect on on people who've been there for me and that kind of thing. So, and I think that's what you do with stories a lot is kind of put your own life to it in that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, and I think it also this time around, I I really picked up on Sam realizing genuinely, I can't carry this, but I can carry you, right? Because he now knows the danger of the ring, and he recognizes that he is susceptible to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I guess in a way that line hit just a little differently this time for me and still great and great, uh, great moment. And then, uh, yeah, the, you know, the Eagles sweep in, um, they do some battle, which I liked. It was kind of a nice addition to have them actually take on the, uh, the fell beasts in the air. And then they, they rescue our, our hobbits and we go into the extended, uh, finale. And I struggled with this in the theater. I remember I had to pee so bad. <laughs> it, it and you know i'm just gonna say like it it felt like it was in slow motion it felt like the characters and in particularly frodo speak in slow motion at times like well, there are moments where it is in slow motion for sure now lines i'm like why are you talking so slow and they take their sweet time with it you know and, right. and but like this movie i think honestly plays best if you split it into probably six like like the books are six books, I guess you know if you look at like the 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 technical book sp- splits, um, yeah, watch it in six in six separate sittings, not uh the the trilogy that is, uh, watch this film in two for sure, if not more, um, and then it won't be a problem, and it wasn't a problem for me this time. I was down for it, you know what I mean, because I wasn't I I didn't have this like oh my god I gotta go pee you know <laughs> moment. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but it really made me laugh very hard. Um, on Twitter, like this past week, um, someone tweeted, they were basically like, damn, boyfriends really love three hour movies. And, uh, <laughs> for some reason it really just made me fucking laugh very hard. That is uh, funny, man. I think yeah, it this was one's almost five hours. <laughs> yeah. I think it was in reference to the Irishman, but just in general, okay. it's a really funny thing to say. And, uh, I, sometimes I feel for, for my girlfriend, I'm like, I'm sorry that this movie's so long if you're not enjoying it, but you know. It's a journey sometimes, and I, and you know, not yeah. to say that she doesn't like long movies as well. It's just you know, sometimes I feel like I'm in for a movie from the 1950s that's in black and white that's three hours long, and she yeah. might not be. And we all love we all love binging TV shows though. So I honestly, I sometimes I think just the ability to get up and go to the bathroom, <laughs> like right. Make a sandwich or whatever you got to do, like really helps. So don't yeah. be afraid to pause a long movie. Like don't don't feel like you have to have to have be uninterrupted. Anyway, we're 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 uh, we're beside the point. The the third scene happens here. And um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it. What what do you think? Just as, I think this would be fun in this final goodbyes and everything else that occurs at Minas Tirith and elsewhere. Where what is the moment that you think got me, or that gets me every Ooh, time? There's, I, I mean, it's one of two moments uh, that I would okay. guess, but I'm gonna guess the one. I'll give you two guesses. Sure. Okay, two guesses. Okay, so the first one is the first one that I'm guessing because you're giving me two guesses is the Bilbo and Frodo stuff in the in the carriage ride. On their way to the what? That's not it. No? Okay, then it's at... That's it's a good moment. It's a good moment. That's not the one that gets then me. Then I think it's physically at the the Grey Havens when they're when they're f- going to set out and Frodo says he's going to leave and, and like Sam's reaction to that. It's not it. No? What is it? No, you didn't get in too. What is it? It is, it is when all of Gondor kneels oh, yeah. to the four hobbits yeah. and including Aragorn and they say, you kneel to no, to no one. And the looks on all their faces as they're looking around and everybody's looking at them. It just fucking slays me every, every time. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And I totally agree. I think the only reason I didn't think about that scene is because it's so affecting to me. And I've seen it so many times because there will be times that I just go on YouTube and watch that scene. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's a scene that like, it's that. I, I love that scene. <laughs> um, and it's funny yeah. that I didn't even think of that. 
Yeah. That's the one. That's number three for me. There were lots of moments where, you know, I mean, I'm feeling tons of emotions, but that's the one that actually yeah. gets gets the, the tears out. Yeah, I mean, I have no problem with the endings, the way that it's all done. Like, I, I don't I don't know. I don't really... I get that the journeys, the climax has happened, but sort of like the coming back down of this story, I get that it's like 30 minutes long. But for me, like, I think it's, I think it's worthy. I think, I think like there's been a lot of, you know, there's what, nine hours worth, 10 hours worth of movies uh, up to this point. So, so like, I don't know, an extra 30 minutes to see how it all wraps. And, and it is kind of like really soothing to just know how it all slowly, you're kind of coming back from this journey and you're getting to live with the characters and see how they're affected by it and and like i and one of my favorite scenes is just seeing the hobbits back in the inn uh back in the oh so good back man. in the bar drinking I, together I, so so smart and and uh, something that i think is kind of subtle and and i didn't i did, at least didn't think about like actively but they're not the story and that's such a good moment they're the story is the guy with the big pumpkin they're in the yeah. bar and like they've just got bowed to by all of Gondor yet when they're in the bar drinking they're looking at each other and they know what they've been through yet the story of the town and everyone is surrounding this guy who who just grew this massive pumpkin. Right. And like that's such a that's such a smart scene. Love that love that way that that plays out. Um so I wanted to shout out uh Lindsay Ellis's video essays she did on these films. Um and one of the, I believe it's her who makes the point that um there are three endings to this film because each one like ends a particular series of events, like a particular plot line has its own ending. Um, and so it's staggered in that way. Um, she does a great job of explaining it. If it's, if it is the videos, it's been a while since I've seen them, but I'm pretty sure it's her and I'm pretty sure it's those videos. So check those out. Um, she's great in general. Follow her channel on, on YouTube. Yeah, she is great. The, I mean, it makes sense. There's like five storylines in this movie. Like we go from one storyline, yeah. kind of one singular narrative in, in Fellowship to to two or three in Two Towers to five in this in this story. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's a massive. In order to wrap it all up, it kind of makes sense to me. And um, I like I've never been a person to be like, oh, I I wish that the Lord of the Rings was shorter. Like clearly, I want to watch the extended editions every time and yeah. like revel in every moment. While we're here talking about endings, I did want to mention that I found out that, you know, there's a lack of the Legolas Gimli ending in the in the extended cut of this of this movie. And apparently something was shot and it was to have like a Galadriel voiceover mo- epilogue kind of detailing what happens here at the end with with the fellowship and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that ended up being scrapped and it clearly wasn't finished and, and put into the, any of the cuts of the movies. I did like the in the book Gimli goes with Legolas to the you know, to the far shores. It was a nice way to end their story. I mean, I, it just, it's fitting because after they've, after they've explored the mines and the forest together, when they, if they go off and, and take that one last, like their friendship is really, really cool and interesting. It'd be, it'd be kind of fun to, to get sort of a look at their, their viewpoint on the trilogy, like entirely from their viewpoint. Although we kind of get most of the details anyway, (laughs) but sort of the inner monologue would be interesting. Um, there's a few more things that I learned in my research that I, that I feel like are of note. There's uh, the moment when Frodo gets pierced by Shelob. Elijah Wood, had, it was Alka-Seltzer in his mouth that's making it foam oh, out like that. okay. So yeah. that's something I always think about when he gets stabbed. I'm like, oh, the foam really, really sells that moment. <laughs> Uh, a normal movie average and you know this this data could be from a little bit further you know in the past i don't mm-hmm. i'm not really sure but this this stat here says a normal mo- movie averages about 200 visual effects shots this movie had 1488 so 1488 special wow. effects shots so i'm sure that they're i know for a fact that their visual def- visual effects department was working like crazy and yeah. um 
another fun little cameo i told you before there was like 10 units when they were doing pickups i believe there was like 10 different units working at the same time and uh peter jackson was shooting something else and was monitoring this this sort of pickup insert that they were doing of of sam's arm as he's about to fight shelob the arm that comes in with sting when he's like revealed it's like a gunslinger moment mm-hmm. uh and i guess peter jackson felt that the arm wasn't being placed incorrectly like like sean astin wasn't there someone else was just doing the insert and so Peter Jackson jumped on his bike and rode across the lot to get to where they were shooting this other scene, donned the Sam the Sam garb, and he that's actually his arm holding Sting as it enters frame at the beginning wow. of the Shelob fight. That's awesome. So, <laughs> pretty funny little moment. He was like, he's like, I guess he just felt they weren't doing it correctly, cool. but yeah. Uh, and then just another big one. This the this was all shot over the course of four years, starting in in the in 1999. Principal photography ended at the kind of. I believe the end of 2001 or maybe the beginning of 2002. And then they would do pickups for like six weeks at a time each year. Uh, and then they did a final group of pick- pickups. And the last the last uh, shot that they ever did uh, was actually three weeks after the 2004 Academy Awards where this movie won Best Picture. They actually were shooting, they were shooting a pickup shot after the movie had already won Best Picture. And it was it, Peter Jackson arranged to film one final shot of skulls on the floor in the tunnels of the Path of the Dead, which was included in the ex- extended edition DVD. He thought it'd be funny. <laughs> he thought it was funny to be doing filming on a movie that had already won Best Picture. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And also it's funny because it goes back to our path with the fact that we weren't going to talk about Path of the Dead anymore, but we are. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Let's move on. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I, we've come to the end here, man. Um, you know, the end of our journey. Um, and there's only one thing left to do and that's to figure out whether we like the, these movies or the books better, or we think they are better. Um, but before we do that, first off, we recorded a bonus episode for our patrons about the Tolkien biopic that we just released, had a lot of fun talking to you about that really interesting film. Uh, we were mixed on it, but we, we really got into things we loved the things that we didn't like. Um, interesting conversation. I hope you guys will check out, uh, if you, if you're curious about that, check out our Patreon. And I want to announce our next project, which is going to be another one that we have been looking forward to for a long time. We are going to do the silence of the lambs by Thomas Harris and, uh, the iconic film featuring Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into that one next week. So make sure to ch- stick around, um, check that out, subscribe and follow this podcast. All right, let's get to it. It's time yeah. to decide. So, uh, which one of us is going first? That's the question. Trilogy as a whole, who's going first? I'm willing to go first, but if, okay. if you want if to. If you want yeah. to, if you're willing, I'll, I will allow it. So I think that this trilogy of films specifically came at a time when it came at the perfect time. So it came at the, the dawning of sort of the digital movement that we see in, in terms of special effects and everything like that. And it was at the perfect time to still sort of lean into the classic filmmaking camera techniques that people were using for a hundred years. That's just t- speaking of the form. Um, and then we come to sort of the structure of the movies. We have, as I talked about the intercutting, I think improved, improved a lot of the narrative um, really helps me to like stay engaged with, with each over time um, and overall, just the craftsmanship and everything that went into this movie. As someone who loves film, like I can't deny how good J.R.R. Tolkien's book is, and how how amazing the story is in general, and what it spawned and what it created. And you know, clearly, this wouldn't exist without it. But you know, the way that this this trilogy has affected me over time, and you know, as a kid, and still to this day, how much I love it. 
I am definitely going to go with the, the movies. And I know that some people are going to be upset about that. But I think that there were very smart changes made. There were things that I think, you know, some people felt were just Peter Jackson being excessive and things like that. But he clearly loved the source material and was trying to do right by Tolkien. And he brought on amazing sketches, sketch artists who had been working on Lord of the Rings since like the 70s, like creating sort of vistas and things like that, like Alan Lee. Um, brought on Howard Shore for this amazing score that I'll listen to periodically just to listen to something amazing. Uh, overall, I think it just encompasses a lot of what I think makes like, even as a blockbuster, what makes, you know, film amazing. And, and like, I think there's so much art in this film that it's undeniable. And, you know, that's not to take away from how, you know, poetic and how game changing and, and sort of ground setting Tolkien was to fantasy, but I, I'm taking the movies. Okay, man. Uh, yeah, so for me, I mean, this was this is an agonizing choice to make. Um, I am not someone who unreservedly loves either of these. Um, I, I have things that I've been critical about, you know, on the movies, you know, listen back, and, and things I've been critical about about the books. Um, I fully recognize that Tolkien is the progenitor of this idea, of this story, and I, believe me, like, I give him tons of credit for that. Um, and in fact, something that really struck me during this viewing was how like Tolkien created what is essentially a modern legend for like all of Western society. <laughs> like it is, it is the, the thing that celebrates the old ways in many ways, like, right. It, it, it celebrates things that we don't believe anymore about, about, you know, aristocracy and noble blood and all this stuff. And in many ways are outdated yet, like many legends and many myths in society, it's a way of preserving like the way that we used to think and the way that we used to view the world. And in, in many ways, that's what Lord of the Rings is. Um, it came in a, a modern era, so it doesn't. It's not going to be a, a considered a myth. It's it's now just a story. But um, if any fantasy piece has ever risen to that level, like it's probably Lord of the Rings, and so much of that credit has to go to Tolkien, you know, for for creating it. Um, these movies are incredible. Like we talked about, you know, everything you just said, uh, you know, groundbreaking in cinema. And uh, it, it, so many smart adaptation choices were made, um, modernizing it, bringing it to to audiences today in a, in a way that is digestible um, and bold and, and took chances and made these giant movies, right? When no one was doing that, especially not in, in, in blockbuster fantasies. Um, I don't know. It, uh, you know what I mean? Th this is why I'm, I'm torn. Um, and it's very difficult for me to pick. Um, ultimately, I have to go with my heart. Like like Aragorn told Gandalf, what what does your heart tell you? And for <laughs> me, it's the movies. I gotta give it to the movies. The movies are a a a just a little bit, just a little bit. They're the better version of this story. And um, part of it is me being trapped in my modern modern moment for sure. Um, but I just have I feel like I have less criticisms of these films than I do the books. Um, and I feel like they've aged, the, the films have aged better than the books have in some ways. So I got to give it to the movies, man. Um, at the end of it all, I, we're in agreement that the Lord yeah. of the Rings films are the, the superior version. Although I do highly recommend reading the books. I think it's mm -hmm. important for history. 
Um, but yeah, at, at, we're, we've, we've come together and we're, we're one voice in the end here. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. Were you expecting that? I feel like you were expecting me to pick the books. Um, I don't know. I, I think I leaned into you. I think I figured you were going to pick the movies, um, because I felt like you would probably agree with a lot of the things that I was saying, but at the same yeah. time, yeah, I, I don't know. You could have easily gone yeah. for the, for the historical context and value of the fact I, that I honestly didn't, I didn't decide until like today. So it, yeah. this was this was a thing that I was on the fence about. So anyway, yeah. I mean, people um, are going to be upset about it. People yeah. will be upset oh, that that's our sure. answer. But I mean, to each their own. Well, yeah. and that's why I'm trying to give Tolkien his due. You know what I mean? Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, but here we are, man. You know, the end of 12 episodes on Lord of the Rings. We'll be back one day with The Hobbit um, and, and and those movies and. It'll be a you know a little dessert to finish this off, but this this is the main event. Yeah, and who knows what'll happen with that that Amazon show at this point? A lot, a lot of stuff yeah. is up in the air Good in terms point. of things Good that point. are coming, but I'm sure it'll come out. And, and I'm sure and, we'll uh, try to. Speaking of Patreon, we are going to be covering Return of the King animated movie later this month, um, just for another little bit, little bit more Lord of the Rings. But but that being said, twelve episodes on and one you know ip is pretty astounding we did uh we did it by stephen king over the cross of i think eight episodes um we've done some other big projects but this is i think the biggest one we've done unless i'm mistaken i'm pretty sure this is it and it's coming to a close um it's been it's been a blast um hopefully everybody enjoyed it hopefully you checked out if, you, if you're just dipping in for the movie episodes do go back and listen to the to the book episodes if they interest you at all um we have a lot of fun talking about those books and, and getting into the differences we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have recording it. Um, it's it's been it's been wonderful. It's been one of my the highlights of doing this podcast, honestly. Yeah, definitely, it's been a joy. Thank you to everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those adding to film and join the Council of Inklings because that's where we post polls, we post news, any sort of adaptation things that we see coming out. We sort of let the community know where we're at, like what we're thinking in terms of potential projects, and then. It's a good way to just stay connected. Absolutely. Like I said, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. See all of our bonus content, 23 and counting bonus episodes on there. A um, lot of interesting stuff, a lot of different things we've covered. So check that out. Oh, and speaking of Council of Inklings, we just posted today new images from the Dune uh, adaptation coming with Denny DeVoe. Oh, yeah. So there's lots of great adaptations on the horizon that we're absolutely looking forward to that we're going to have a lot of fun with. I cannot wait for that. I just, everything I see, every, every little, every little nibble that I can get, I'll take, you know? <laughs> oh, and if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. It helps the podcast out so much, um, helps us get the word out, um, and, you know, tell your friends. Uh, it'd be great. We appreciate it. Thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man, that's it. That's the end. We're back in the Shire. We're home. And until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>